I'm Joseph B. O'Brien, and you're listening to the Flapper House podcast. Yes, I know it's been quite a while since we last cast our pot at you. About six weeks, in fact. But we're going to try to make that up to you with an extra long episode. It's about nearly two hours long, and it is a recording of our sixth reading, which occurred on Wednesday night, March 23rd, 2016, in the back room of a very cool bar called Pacific Standard, which is at 82 4th Avenue in Brooklyn, just a few blocks from the Barclays Center. They've hosted all our readings so far, and they've always been very kind and accommodating, and we're very grateful for that. So our sixth reading uh, was meant to celebrate a couple of things. First, the flight of our ninth issue, Flapper House Number 9, our spring 2016 issue which is uh, now available in print. You can get it on Amazon or CreateSpace. You can also get a digital PDF copy of it through our website. Go to flapperhouse.com zine and uh, find the cover of our ninth issue. Click on that and it'll give you instructions how to order. It's $3 for digital copies, $6 for print. And uh, you'll see work from a lot of great writers, including four who read at our sixth reading. There's uh, William Lessard, uh, who you'll hear first. Uh, he reads a couple of flash fictions at the reading, uh, followed by a couple of poems, which are in our ninth issue. You'll hear, uh, after William, you'll hear Stephen Langlois read his story, Redfield, a very disturbing short story from our ninth issue. After Stephen, you'll hear Christina Rao, who uh, contributed a couple of poems to our new issue. She'll read one of those. She'll also read uh, other poems she's written in uh, her chapbooks and uh, in a work in progress that she's doing. You'll uh, hear Leona Godin after Christina. Leona will read in her very wonderful style an excerpt from her story, Likenesses, which appears in Flapper House Number 9. Uh, after Leona... Uh, you'll hear a couple other writers who don't appear in the new issue, but they have contributed to us in the past and read with us in the past. T. Mazzara, uh, who has been our fiction editor for a while and has also contributed short fiction and prose poetry. He's going to read from his novel in progress. After Mr. Mazzara, you'll hear Joanna Valente, who is a featured poet in our fifth issue. She, I'm sorry, in our eighth issue, where she contributed five poems. And she also read with us at our fifth reading. Uh, and we liked her so much, we wanted to have her back. So Joanna follows Mr. Mazzara. And our featured reader of the evening is Anthony Michael Morena, who contributed a, a spectacular flash fiction to our third issue called ARG. Uh, but the reason he's with us at reading number six uh, is the other reason we're celebrating. Uh, he's reading excerpts from his forthcoming book, The Voyager Record, which is coming out from Rose Metal Press in May of 2016. And it's a fantastic book. I just finished reading all of it. It's a genre-smashing work uh, that's technically classified as lyric essay, I believe, but it's a, it's a mashup of essay and poetry and fiction, and it's and it's unlike any book I've ever read. So check out the Voyager record coming soon by Anthony Michael Morena 
from Rose Metal Press. So I won't take up too much more time, because like I said, it's an extra long episode, but before we get to that, I just want to uh, apologize to the first reader, William Lesser. There were some technical glitches early on in the recording, so uh, my introduction of him got cut out, and there are one or two moments where a couple seconds of his work gets cut out, but uh, after that, it's pretty smooth. So, Bill, sorry about the glitches there. Anyway, since his introduction got cut out, uh, I'll just give a brief intro for Bill before we get into the recording. So, William Lessard, or Bill as everyone calls him, uh, is a fantastic writer. He's contributed to McSweeney's, NPR, Wired, Trunk Monkeys, a bunch of other great publications. He has a poetry chapbook coming out from Reality Beach later this year. And he also uh, co-curates, along with our good friend Bud Smith, a reading series called Cool as Fuck, which is a monthly reading series in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn at Pete's Candy Store. The next one uh, after this recording is going to be Tuesday, March 29th uh, at 6.30 p.m., until 9 p.m., and uh, it's a monthly series, so if you can't make it out on Tuesday the 29th, or if you hear this after the 29th, just go check it out uh, whenever you can, because it's a great series. So please enjoy Flapper House reading number six, starting with William Lessard. Hey, everybody, what's up? (laughs) Okay. So if you like this, okay, now I'm talking too loud. Yeah, it's a very sensitive mic. Okay. So if you like what you're hearing, like yell, make noise, do shit like that, uh, it makes me read better. Charge. Yes, absolutely. If you have like one of those Vuvuzela things, you want to blow that? Go ahead. Transmission 66. The Luna 9, a Soviet vessel, made the first soft landing on the moon. It arrived west of the crater Marius in the ocean of storms. I too was traveling that day on the Bronx River Parkway. The pilot and my mom. The Luna 9 landed at 1845 and 30 seconds universal time. My arrival came later. It was in the middle of the Dean Martin show Guests on the broadcast that night included Bob Hope and Juliet Prowse. The Luna 9 broadcast began five minutes after touchdown. It lasted three days. The hermetically sealed canister containing radio equipment, timing device, heat control systems, and power sources was not heard from after February 6th. My mission has been ongoing. I have traveled 50 human years from point of origin. The pilot died aged 57 in 1991. Complications of alcoholism. The outer vessel that aided my arrival was jettisoned long ago. The inner, with cracked, mottled skin, is housed in a nursing facility not far from base camp. 
mission objective is still forthcoming. Details occasionally arrive. A scratchy, old-fashioned voice speaking between the faux walnut walls of a 1970 zenith solid state. Tonight's transmission, born the year of the horse, birth element fire. You are Yang Fire Horse. This one is, uh, this is from my grandmother, and maybe it's for your grandmother too. It's called Grandmother's Tea. How long we stayed away depended on what he did. Cursing, breaking plates against the wall in the middle of the night was one day. Smashing an entire set of dishes, punching a hole in the wall, that was a week giving my mother a second-degree burn on her arm with a splashed cup of coffee. That was an indeterminate break, a month, two, sometimes longer. The periodic explosions went on for years. I could tell when one was coming on, a fight at breakfast over money, a request from my mother that he turn off the hockey game, a pound of ground chuck gone bad in the refrigerator. The signs were not on the twisting seas and rains preceding a tropical storm. They could be so predictable that my mother would lay out clothes for both of us just in case something happens tonight. Sometimes I went to bed fully clothed, lying bolt straight on my mattress counting down to his keys jingling in the, in the front door. The mattress grew narrower. My legs began to spill over the foot of the bed. His behavior reached new extreme levels. Years of drinking, countless relationships with women, not my mother, had destabilized him. He was an element experiencing rapid exponential decay at half-life. A quiet, almost peaceful breakfast could start a day that ended with my mother and I jumping over the back fence as he stood in the middle of the yard in his underwear, cursing and waving a hammer. It was during the longest of the indeterminate breaks that my mother attempted a positive change. She told him that one afternoon a year ago, I pinched his tiny cold jar of insulin between my fingers, suggesting we loosen the cap. I wasn't sure on the physics of it. All I knew was that an air bubble could bring a quick end to our problems. My mother repeated what happened in the hope that it would bring the disgust that preceded redemption. I learned what she did the morning after when she said he was waiting outside. He's sorry. He wants to talk to you. She repeated how sorry he was 
as she walked out the apartment door in her leopard coat. My grandmother warned me not to go. I went anyway. I thought if something happened, my mother would be there to protect me. My mother wasn't there. He did such a good acting job, my mother had rushed off to work. He was still acting when I wobbled toward him in my scuffed dress shoes. He was smiling, leaning against his green 72 Malibu with white walls parked at the hydrant at the corner. It was the first time I had seen him in about four months. He continued smiling, arms folded, sun shining off his bald head until I was two feet away. Half the cry broke from my lips. He grabbed me, lifted me off the ground with one hand while beating me with the other, smacking, 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 smacking. My, cheek, my cheeks stinging, my shirt and my plaid school uniform shredded at my neck as I struggled to breathe. I'm not sure what happened. I remember shaking. I remember thinking there were invisible hands still hitting me an hour later. I was lying sideways across the open Castro in my grandmother's living room. My grandmother was in the kitchen. She had been on the phone a minute ago, yelling at someone. Her wide form huddled next to the stove in a torn pink house dress dotted with roses. When the, when the kettle began whistling, she served the tea the way she always did. Big mug, lots of milk, metal tray that looked like silver. I took short breaths between gulps. There was more sugar in the tea than usual. So after that grim fucking like uh, story, I need to tell like a funny, something funny. So like my grandmother was like this really, really old school Irish lady. Okay, she didn't know what the fuck feminism was, but she was it, right? <laughs> she came to this fucking country at 11. She had spent like three weeks like at the railing on the boat, like throwing up. And then when she got here, she worked as a house girl for all these rich people. So it was kind of like Downton Abbey, only the rich people like didn't give a flying fuck about her. You know, it was like real, in other words. <laughs> So anyway, um, yeah, my grandmother was like the only person that I felt was like on my fucking side in my life. I'm sure other people can relate to that concept. And um, I remember on one occasion, someone called her apartment and it was like some sort of an obscene phone call. And she, you know, she was not blocking them on Twitter. She wasn't calling like Green Poe to like help her. She just sorted that shit out right <laughs> then and there, right? So she's like listening on the phone to what this person was saying. And then she goes, why don't you rub it on a piece of glass? Maybe you get some fucking relief. Well, she didn't say fucking, but she said, maybe you'll get some relief. And I'm like, right on. 
Um, I'd like to thank, uh, before I get into the poems that are actually in the issue, I want to thank all of you for coming out tonight. So like, give yourselves a, hand, a round of applause. Yeah. Um, I'd like to thank Joe, the Flapper House people, and all ex-employees of The Strand uh, for their <laughs> fine efforts. Uh, I also want to do, do a little shout out. Like, you know, it's, it's fun being part of the literary community because, you know, you see people getting better. Like when I opened up, you know, this issue, I saw a, a story in there from my friend Steven, and it's like, yeah, man. It's, it's, like, it's like coming out of spring training. It's like he's got something a little bit extra on his, uh, his curveball. So like, right on with that. Um, so I wrote the, the poems that are in uh, the current issue. They're kind of like my seasonal affective disorder poems. Like I wrote them all around September. And it's like, you know, you write them, it's like just as like the, the NyQuil PM is like hitting you, it's like that sort of like dreamy, gloomy Halloween type shit. Um, so anyway, I hate people that talk too much at poetry readings. Okay. So this is like Chagall weird shit that I'm going to read now. Weather. The night that became night. We open the door in the middle of our bed. The door is candy corn tear. The door is blue giant ear. You go first, I follow. The map says, call ghosts. You call with the side of your hand. No ghosts. You call, not a ripple in the curtain dark. I say, call with a different voice. You cup your hand, call as the girl that stands behind your eyes. The girl is ripped dress tacked to a post. The girl is blood wiped from the tip of his favorite tie. I know this girl. She thinks she's hiding, but I catch her. I've seen her often peering out, sometimes with eyes bolted to the jewels of foreign fingers. Her voice is your lace curtain voice speaking in gasoline flame. All the ghosts know her. All the ghosts know you. They appear as smoke blown beneath door. This is how the night begins. Your voice, this tree. Last poem. Advice from Spirit Eater. Blue baby angel tucked behind your spleen. Every night he claws out just to watch cartoons. Can't stop him, can slow him down. He likes sugar and anger. Give him vegetables and joy. Thank you. William. Um, our next reader was mentioned uh, by 
Bill, just a moment ago. He's got a story in the issue called Redfield, and it is kind of a curveball. Um, he's, he's at work in some of my favorite publications like Matchbook and Monkey Bicycle and our good friends at Gigantic Sequins. Um, and he also runs the Brew Reading in Greenpoint, which you should check out if you have not yet. There's another one next month, April 14th. April 14th. Please give it up for Stephen Langlois. Hey everybody, thanks for coming in. Like five drinks here. Is there like a back check or something? No, this isn't the strength. Yeah, thanks everybody for coming out. Um, kind of going with the loose Bowie theme, I was planning on uh, being lowered from the ceiling uh, with, via harness to a space oddity, but um, I guess we can, the harness rental fell through or something? What, what yeah, was it? And yeah. The guy's a jerk. Yeah, I mean, I, I apologize on behalf of Flatprouse for not letting that. I, most of my readings I try to uh, descend from the ceiling. That's <laughs> I mean, kind of a nice way to start things off. Um. <clears throat> Okay, so yeah, I'm going to read this story that's in this issue of Flapper House. Um, it's called Red Field. Um, it's not super long, but a little long, so just bear with me. Uh, Alright, here it is. Red Field. First time she said it, well, it hardly sounded like anything at all. She was beside me, asleep. Her eyes were doing that thing, that rapid movement thing, and her lips kind of pursed for a second before going all slack like she was struggling to tell someone something real important. The second time it was just two disconnected syllables. Third time there was words. There was definite words that third time. Red field, she was saying, and what it brought to mind was like a field of thick reddish grass like what you might see in a painting of some distant countryside somewhere. That or it was like a field which had caught fire. A blaze is what they call it radiating a deep red hue there in the twilight. Redfield, she said again. And that's when I, I understood it was a name. A man's, most likely. For a second, my brain even latched on to the idea of another lover. Like in how movies, they're always accidentally confessing to secret affairs. But there was a kind of fearfulness in her voice that made me decide otherwise. I was wide awake by this point. I'd been really for hours. It was the medication, I suppose. The doctor said if he was to keep upping the dosage, it'd start interfering with my sleep cycle, and he was right. It did. You know anybody who goes by the name of Redfield? I asked her in the morning. Redfield, she said, thinking on it for a while. I liked that about her. She was what you'd call a deep thinker. No, she said. No Redfield. Next night, though, was the same damn thing. Redfield, she kept on saying, and was like... She was unconsciously, or is it subconsciously, trying to issue a warning about this individual. It was unsettling, laying there in the dark, listening to that. It was like maybe this red field was out there, leaning against the chain link fence between the yard and Riverside Park, looking up at the bedroom window, just kind of enjoying the fact that someone was up here, uttering his name with what might be described as dread. 
sure you don't know anybody by the name of Redfield? I asked her over coffee. I know Redfield, her kid said, coming into the kitchen in search of breakfast. I know about Redfield anyways. I had a whole dream about him last night. His name's Redfield, she told us. And he lives in a field. A red field, she said. Though I knew I weren't supposed to, not after what happened the previous time, I decided to skip my meds. I was getting sick of lying awake after working my ass off all day, and come 11 o'clock that night, I pretty much passed right out. Stayed that way, too, for a good two or three hours before waking up like I ain't never been asleep in the first place. I'd been saying his name. I knew it somehow. Redfield, he said, trying it out like for investigative purposes. And I meant I was a little spooked by how familiar it sounded coming out of my mouth. It was like probably I'd spoken his name quite a bit before that night. Like, I was trying to speak to him directly almost. A prayer, you might say, of the unhallowed variety. Redfield, said a voice, louder this time, and I figured it was my own before comprehending it was the woman beside me, still asleep. It weren't too long before another voice could be heard from down the hall joining in. It was the kids. And I tell you, it was almost like Redfield was there in the house. It was like our late night utterances really had somehow gone and conjured this man, a body, with all the fleshy weight that came along with it, the unrestrained limbs, the brain matter sparking with what it is they call cognition. I could picture Redfield peering, peering around the doorways into each room, envisioning to himself what sort of devastation he might someday bring about to this otherwise unharmed space. <coughs> what I did the next day is, when I got home from work, I got onto the computer and typed in that name, hoping an article might pop up, like how it does on TV, explaining everything that was happening. What I got instead was a bunch of garbage, the census data for the town of Redfield, South Dakota, multiple ads for Redfield Revolution rifle scopes, until it was I came upon a scan of an old newspaper clipping from the Rutland Herald. What this clipping detailed was the morning of February 16, 1906, upon which a fire began from some unknown source along Merchant's Row, less than a mile from where I sat there at the computer, eventually making its way over to the Mead Building on the corner of Center Street, and from there east to the Tuttle Printing Company headquarters. Like a storm-swept sea, is how the Herald described it, the heart of the business district was devastated by a fire that had been subdued, destroyed property worth nearly $700,000. In its merciless pathway of destruction, seven gorgeous mercantile structures were mown down like timber amid the thunder of artillery in action. As for the photo of the combination cash store included aside this clipping, well, it was pretty damn unsettling what with, way the, with the way the building was so dark in color, you couldn't hardly see its actual shape and the flames so white, it was basically some kind of hue you don't normally see here in this world. That's what I was thinking anyway when it was I came across these words. Charles E. Redfield, who resides at the corner of Willow and Edson Street, was seized with an epileptic fit yesterday morning in front of the combination cash store. Mr. Redfield was removed to the depot and Dr. Heidel summoned. The fit, it is thought, the result of excitement attending the fire. There he was. There was Redfield. And if I was to say I weren't all the more in for it, I'd be a goddamn liar. Especially when next I came upon a clipping detailing the fire, which on January 7th, 1973, took down the Berwick Hotel in the corner of Center in Wales, not more than two blocks from where it was the 1906 fire originated. The photo aside this clipping was like the other. 
The building in its ruination was like this darkened void, and the flames like something slipping out of this void, sucked of all but the starkest of color, trying desperately to make itself whole again. For a second, you can even recognize it, the fire, I mean, as a thing that could occur here, the way it looks so contrary to how it is reality is otherwise configured. Missing and presumed dead 24 hours after the hotel apartment fire, the Herald reported, were five of its residents, Joseph Turmel, Miss Anna McGurk, Albert Houghton, Jacqueline LaRose, and Harold R. Redfield. That night, we were all three of us chattering our way, me being the first one to awaken and come to an awareness of it. I remember Redfield. Donald Redfield. She was saying from beside me in this deep sort of stir. I'd only ever heard from her once or twice before. Truth is, her eyes was still half shut, and I couldn't say for sure whether she wasn't still partially asleep. Lived next door to us when I was a kid in Redfield, she said. He'd spend most weekends working on this old go-kart of his. Acetone is what my dad said he was using on the bolts, like to try to remove the rust. Well, she said what happened was he had the go-kart running this one time, and a spark shot out and lit the acetone on fire. Lit Redfield on fire, too, and it was like... He was just this creature made entirely out of fire. What I mean is, he wasn't flailing around like how you might expect. No, she said, opening her eyes up fully now. What he did was kind of shuffle up and down the driveway like he was a little confused is all. Confused, she said, to maybe find himself in his natural state. Like to be a man of fire was his true form, you know? Abby and me, she said, we saw it. We were out in the yard when it happened, though Mom told us afterwards we didn't see anything at all. I saw him, the king. I had a whole other dream about him, she told us as she climbed into the bed between us, and I'll admit I was thankful for that. I had real affection for that kid, even if she weren't of my own blood, and I was thankful, I suppose, for the added security her body seemed to provide. I saw him, she was saying just standing there in the middle of that field I was telling you guys about. He was saying how this was how it was before. How it was before all the buildings got built. How it was before all the people got born. Skipping my meds, I guess, was having the opposite effect. What I mean is now I could hardly keep my eyes open, and the next day at work I fell asleep after lunch with my head on the table, which Ain't exactly easy when you consider the sound of all that machinery around you. As for what I dreamt about, well, it was the exact same field the kid had described. Tall, thick stalks of reddish grass far as the eye could see. And there was Redfield, standing there in the middle of it, looking sort of impatient, actually. Like, he'd been waiting on me for some time now. What he said to me was how he was the one who burned it all down when the old grass got too tall. He'd burned down so the new grass could grow in its place, and the new grass, he explained, was always redder than the last. This, he told me, in such a way, it was like he didn't expect me to fully understand it. When one of the other guys was finally able to shake me awake, he looked at me kind of funny and said, Who the hell is Albert Redfield? Wasn't until that night I recalled Albert Redfield, a fella I came across when I was up at Waterbury in the mid-90s, back before the feds pulled Medicaid funding and the place really started falling apart. Word was, Albert Redfield had tried to light himself on fire after dousing himself with gasoline. Self-immolation is what they call it, and ended up at the ER before getting sent our way. 
His arms was still pretty much all covered in bandages, and in his hands he had to wear these special protective gloves like so as they didn't swell up or get all infected. They said it was a protest against Bosnia, one of the guys I was in there with told us. Yeah, looks to me like a standard suicide attempt, another one of the guys said, but truth is we never found out. Redfield didn't hardly ever say nothing, and it weren't more than a month before they transferred him to some other place where I guess they could better treat him. Later heard he tried again, the self-immolation I mean, though that ain't really the issue here. The issue is, how exactly is it I could just forget something like that? How is it you can spend every goddamn night blabbing your ass off about some guy named Redfield and not remember the guy you once knew went by that very... It was like some kind of amnesia was lifting. It was like Redfield had been there all along in our subconscious, or is it unconscious? And we were just now becoming aware of his presence. Like Redfield almost had this powerful quality about him. Godlike is what they call it, and was everywhere all at once. Like Redfield, all godlike was constantly dying by one sort of fire or another, being reborn, dying, and being reborn all over again, always, all the time. That was to be my last thought anyway, before it was, I pretty much blacked out. When I came to, I figured because of the illumination at the bedroom window, it must be morning, and then I perceived the woman beside me still asleep. Before I could think upon this further, I found I had left the bed and was standing there now at the window. What I saw was the softball field over in Riverside Park all blazed with flame there in the night. It was all blaze and writhing in a sort of agony and lurching forward in a kind of confusion. The entirety of the flame, I mean. Like some creature abruptly woken from ancient slumber and uncertain, you might say, of its purpose. Maybe a group of kids had snuck into the park like they sometimes did, built a bonfire down by the creek and let it get out of hand. Or was it maybe more along the lines of the Burwick Hotel, the destruction of which the Rutland City Fire Chief at the time believed to be the result of arson? Such questions ceased to matter, really, once it became clear the flames had somehow passed through the chain link and into the backyard and were, in fact, all called together below the bedroom window, as if here now some purpose might be discovered. Only then did it occur to me to pick the cell phone up off the table beside that woman and dial 911. And what is your name, sir? The operator asked me once I provide her the address and explained the nature of the emergency the best I could. Sir, she said. What's your name? She was heard to say. And I understood then there was only one name really which would suffice. Thanks. Stephen. Uh, our next reader, I, I discovered uh, last month uh, when I saw her work in Yes Poetry, which is edited by our good friend Joanna, who you will hear later. Um, she's also written some chapbooks called Wake, Breathe, Move, and For the Girl's Eye. She does a, uh, a reading circuit called Poets in Nassau in my home state of Long Island. And <laughs> it's a state. Um, she's got some poems in Flapper House number nine. Um, please give her a round of applause for Christina Rao.
I'm Christina. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. This is just an awesome event. So uh, I'm going to start by reading just a poem from each collection, and then I'm going to read you some new stuff. But I don't think I know anybody here, so it's really all new stuff for you. Isn't it? <laughs> okay. So this is from For the Girl's Eye. Leah Davis and the Velvet Underground. She had almost no memory of wearing boots up to her knees. Shiny, shiny boots, fur-lined, matching her fur-trimmed jacket, crushed and purple. She was femme fatale number 38. One too late to meet Lou and Nico, too. He'd gone back to Germany. Andy, he had no interest anymore. He'd moved on to wheels, steel, and barrels. The band simply didn't need an oboe player. Still, it was years before she abandoned that zoned-out melodic dream. She heard the oboe's low gloom ingratiating itself with their exploding plastic hipness around every revolution. She envisioned its reed vibrating, her lips remaining pursed and her cheeks clenched in on stage in the shadows of backup. When she peeled off her boots slowly, revealing more than a few things wrong with her, she turned to Proust. She found more acceptance in translation. Finally, a place where she could make what wasn't hers everything it should be. And this is one from Wait Reap. What it means to remain. One moment when the good and the beautiful applies to both of us simultaneously. Regardless of who's still attached to the bed frame, regardless of who played the whippy, regardless of the prelude and foreplay or lack of either or both. The good and the beautiful means both of us together, untangling limbs on my sheets wet with sweat or my kitchen counter or my carpet in my den, regardless of which one of us stood in sunlight and which hid behind a tree. Regardless of who remembered to call whom, who paid for whose rent and insurance, regardless of who did or did not make the reservation or kept the reservation or had reservations he kept to himself. It's the moment when sparse curves and freckles mean perfection. A candle burnt out by its own pool filled the room and lungs with black soot before you arrived, a day, a week, another two years of silence late for no reason without warning. But then you lit a match against your head held it between your thumb and middle finger, let the flame graze your chin, and in the glow of fire, sallow, rough skin turns a creamy olive. From sewers emerge saints who preach forgiveness. True colors present themselves skewed, rampaging through to the post-coital curl, the after that's always worth it. I think I finally finished my first full collection until I decide to like change everything around again. Um, it's called Liberating the Astronauts, and it's a little bit about space and a little bit not. So these next few are from that. Colony Collapse. Those people carry those lives with them. All those lives of the now dead for decades and days, kept in frayed pockets, loose change, old this is why my lower back hurts, my spleen aches. Their dead have found a way into me. This is why I cry at commercials. Those people have too much, too cramped. Their coats too full, overflow, bust open. I have emptiness, I have light. 
a cavernous square, a stilted unsure. For splendor, for the consciousness of a clear vein, nebulid in a flash, then gone. Flight log. Nothing hurts in zero gravity. Everything hurts in zero gravity. There is no pain in zero gravity, except for the pain of zero gravity. This memory has zero gravity. That time I watched Space Camp, and the scariest part was when the camper floated away and away, and the real astronaut in her motorized chair floated towards him. There is speed in zero gravity, but there's also no speed. There's drifting, there's nowhere. No one cares about these things in zero gravity. If they do, these things get caught in the chamber, and they cannot decompress in zero gravity. They linger. Hopefully, you know what space camp is. If you don't, you need to go on like Netflix or something and find it. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. So, is that who was in it? I don't even remember who was in it. Yeah. Oh, okay. When he like had a fake name. Okay. Yeah. I Yeah, just find it. It's you have to watch it. It's scary. Okay, so this is dorm life or Judith learns astronomy. When Judith was in college, she and her roommate Jessica decided to fun tack glow in the dark celestial bodies to the ceiling, purchase black light posters and a black light. Adopt an iguana in a large tank, taking up most of the space in their room in the hopes that the boys across the hall would be attracted to something about them that really had nothing to do with them. The Jays, as they came to be known, packed dozens of freshmen into their room, boomed some Wu-Tang, got buzzed off Bartles and James before heading to frat houses that fell together more like halfway houses for cons, integrating back anxiety of youthful ambivalence. Sometimes, Judith snuck back to the dorm, while everyone else made out on ripped leather couches in those frat houses in a haze of hot cocaine. She climbed into bed with her clothes and heavy makeup still on, turned off the gooseneck lamp still attached to the bed, closed her eyes tight to see sparking remnants of sight. When the thoughts came back in, she stared up and always startled at the glow. Unable to shake the line from the movie her older siblings watched while she was supposed to be asleep, when her parents had gone to the opera, leaving the four of them on their own for the first time. My God, it's full of stars. That's from Space Odyssey, of course. And it's terrifying when you're a child and you hear that. Liberating the astronauts. Each kills the other in sleep. Astronomy versus astrology. About, about the right to name Pluto, save Alaska, have at the freeze-dried raspberry crumb cake. Meanwhile, in Africa, the hyenas stalk each other, even as newborns, a natural instinct as intrinsic as their cackling. Contraindications to zero gravity include an aversion to Nancy Drew. The clapping, the incessant clapping in the ears, the boats, the boats, the miserable boats, sick at sea, a thousand leagues in the opposite direction. Walt appears. A wide reaching of arms, upsweeping, yawping, yelping, blabbing, blowing, transporting, vibrating for humanity. The astronauts no longer need the suits. They swim in space, moving through whatever atmosphere they need. 
all earth a savanna, a savasana, a small round thing. So to wrap it up, I'm gonna re I've, lately I've been writing about creatures like nymphs and gnomes and mermaids and sirens, and I don't know anything about them, so what I do know about them, I put into a poem, and then I make up some other stuff that I think I should know about them. So most of what I'm going to read, if you know anything about them, is going to be wrong. So, <laughs> sorry. Okay. Daughters of Denouse. Fifty nymphs sparkle in their father's eye. Denouse builds the first ship, sets sail with his daughters to escape his twin's plan. Fifty sons of his twin, Egyptus, desire the fifty Dineides, Egyptus, Egyptus followed Danaus and his daughter Nymphs with 50 sons to seat themselves. For aggravation, for power, for need for revenge, Danaus gives in. 50 sons of Danaus marry 50 lustful sons of Egyptus. On their quiet wedding night, 50 daughters of Danaus slit open 50 throats wide. 50 sons of Egyptus lose their heads. Now the daughters remain in hell. Fifty nymphs crying day by day into a perforated barrel they so much wish to fill. So this is the poem that appears in Flapper House, so thank you again. Uh, this is Washerwomen. They sing a dull, sad song, preparing sheets to shroud the dead. Men can't resist a moon dance, a ripple dance, long white hair. The women weave it to make the sheets they wash. They wear tattered dresses, black and gray, subsist on night and liquid. Act kindly to those pure of heart and those at peace, those who dream and walk the moon. From caves underground, they emerge beside stagnant waters. They offer cleansing to those who discard the harmony of the night. They pull sinners close, pretty day faces wrinkle at dark. Sins fade only below the surface, twisted in damp sheets. These shrouds are for sins. Sometimes the women are only shadows. this to prove that sometimes I'm happy. <laughs> this is the office mermaid. Her constant trips to the water cooler have begun to interfere with the quality of her work. She hears the glove glove bubbling whenever anyone takes a sip, calling to her as the sirens called Odysseus. Her fin needs to flex before it cramps in the cramped space under her desk, so flipping over to the, co to the corner to wet her palate and save her scales is the best remedy to keep up her morale, even though morale is not the equivalent of production. Jillian, her cubicle mate, doesn't seem to mind the constant breaks. She follows the flippers to the water cooler to dish about this and that. Henry, however, hates them both. He wears tight pants, feels as cramped as the mermaid at his desk, but he never breaks from sifting through memos unless it's to head to the coffee room or the paper shredder. The office mermaid has shred her share of items in the past, so she sticks to light typing, the occasional drift into nowhere while staring at a screensaver of clownfish and giant bubbles, adjusting her headset so that it doesn't get caught up in her cascading curls, and putting in purchase orders for more disposable mini cups for the cooler. HR has been haranguing her about the dress code violation, but she insists the shell bra is a cultural thing and therefore is protected by law. She's pretty sure Henry lodged the complaint about it. Jillian overheard him whispering vehemently into the phone a few days ago. 
Henry hasn't learned you can't keep secrets in an office with no walls. The office mermaid continues to wear her shell bra and is taken to coloring her scales neon so they look like spandex. Then, right after lunch, she licks up the leftover salt in the break room and rubs it on her skin. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Um, so, we don't really do themes in Lapper House issues because I kind of like to see what the collective unconsciousness likes to send us, um, and usually themes kind of emerge. So, if you remember Stephen's story, Redfield, um, that was the second story we accepted for this issue. The first one, called Doodlebug, is about an immortal family that lives in London and how they kind of cycle through life. And the third one accepted is by our next reader, um, which also kind of follows the immortality, reincarnation, eternal recurrence kind of theme, which I thought was really cool. Um, she, if, if you've been to our third reading, you might remember her. She read her story, The All, which was in our sixth year. She also contributes to Quail Bell Magazine, which is a really cool uh, publication. And we're so glad to have her back with us tonight. Please welcome Leona Godin. Thank you very much to Joe and to Flapper House for inviting me to read my family history, my family history called Likenesses. We will pick things up in medias res when my protagonist, Leona, not me, my grandmother, Leona, uh, meets her husband and has her baby. Please would you put my, my music on. This is Arnold Schoenberg, Opus 2478. And could you put it a little bit more quiet? It's background music. It's a little bit too loud. I'm sorry, Arnold would not like to be background music, but he is dead. <laughs> this photograph-inspired section is entitled Alcidos and Leona, 1939. Working and helping Mama to raise Arthur had left Leona no time for socializing or finding a husband until Arthur went to work in the Nevada City mines and began sending money home. By then she was no longer young, nearly 30, so of course she thought herself very lucky when she found Alcidos at the William Tell, where they offered Swiss fare and nightly dancing. Alcidos Goodin, a French-Canadian ancestry, was born with surname Godin, but followed in the footsteps of several of his 12 elder siblings by adding the additional O in order to avoid the unfortunate American pronunciation, God in. 
a construction worker who followed WPA jobs from Minnesota to San Francisco. Alcides proved a perfect gentleman and a brave worker too. He'd helped to build the San Francisco Oakland Bay as well as its younger and more splendid span, which had opened just before Leona and he met. Alcidos would have good, if dangerous, work for years to come. Best of all, he also loved to dance and wanted lots of children. Unlike the portrait of Mama and Papa, the photograph of Alcidos and Leona had taken at the Golden Gate International Exposition shows two bright-eyed, smiling faces. I think I thought I was taller than I was. <laughs> Serene and confident in their future happiness together. Thus, as you might imagine, the first time Alcidos returned, Leona did not recognize him. She was so big, the baby do any day, that she mistook him for an angel. She had been resting for a moment on the little back porch of their new home in Visitation Valley, when the hummingbird flew to her and hovered drenched in sunlight. Her heart sang with joy. The baby would be swaddled in love and happiness as voluminous as any babe could want. It was not long after that, friends of Alcidos, who had been working on the job with him and his foreman, knocked on her door. The darkness that encompassed them chilled her. It was an unthinking certainty of doom. Probably the foreman spoke first, clutching his hat. How sorry we are to have to bring you this sad, very, very sad, dreadful news and especially as you, as you are in your condition, Mrs. Goodin. We are not sure how it happened. He did not want to say it right out. He wanted to prepare her. Strangely, she was suddenly the calm one. She asked, my husband has been hurt? Their hesitation and furtive glances told her what they could not say. Alcidos is dead. She whispered to herself or them, it did not matter. They were relieved. They continued as if it had been one of them that had braved the evil world. Leona let them prattle on, condolences and regrets piling atop, one atop the other. A rubble heap as tall as at one of their construction sites. Others, tongue-tied or talkative, came and went, the parlor filled with the sounds and scents of birth and death. Gifts of baby booties and tiny crocheted hats sat alongside impossibly dense clusters of flowers and baked goods. Cards of happy congratulations mingled with those pronouncing sorrow. Mama took care of Leona in the four days between death and birth, and remained with her thereafter. Alcidos Wooden Jr., Elsie, was born while his father rumbled away on an eastbound tree. His family wanted to bury him in their Minnesota plot. Leona was too shocked by the first loss to protest the second. 
but it developed that his body was inconsequential. Elsie, 1942. Elsie's first years passed while the Second World War raged in Europe, and many Visitation Valley, which resembled more closely the ranch it had once been than it did the rest of San Francisco, went back to their roots to survive. One day, Mama came home with a crate of chickens, and soon thereafter, bartered eggs for goat's milk from the neighbors across the fence. In this way, Elsie grew up chasing chickens and looking with his handmade-down brass button coat and handmade knit cap, just like Papa as a boy, said Arthur, chuckling, and snapped a picture of the funny little old-world child. When she saw the photograph, Leona thought her, her, how her son had been born in mourning and was being raised in calamity, but that somehow his cheeks remained flushed with a happy, rosy glow. It was around then that Leona recognized her husband in the figure of a chicken. He had not been one of those mama had brought home but rather sauntered into their yard from nowhere, it seemed, and made himself right at home, laying more eggs than the other three together. Leona could not say for certain when she recognized the chicken as her beloved husband exactly, but when it came to her, she'd known it as a fact. She'd felt that her dear Alcidos hovered near watching over them almost from the moment the son had been born. But now it appeared to her as a comforting and certain truth, as if an unseen hand gathered in all that was good and kept everything else out. From her moment of revelation, Leona lived with a father and a son in a Trinitarian paradise, while Mama hung in the background like a reliable, if disagreeable, yeah. <laughs> That is all that I have time for this evening, but I want to refer you to the marvelous issue number nine, the House, in which you can read the rest of the story and other marvelous stories. Thank you so much. intermission, but uh, we're running a fine schedule, but that's okay. So if you don't mind strapping yourselves in, we're just going to plow ahead. Our next reader, if you know anything about Flapper House, you know that this next reader is the Joe Strummer to my Mick Jones. He keeps Flapper House real and more punk rock than it might normally be. He's, uh, he's contributed stories, prose poetry, and for uh, much of the past year, he was our fiction editor, and tonight he's going to read from the novel he's been working on with a uh, prominent author. And sorry, I'm not checking my phone. I'm queuing up the music for Team Mazzara.
for these things because I don't want to look at you, but I can't find my hat, so we're all screwed. Uh, singing your songs. Um, and to my fellow MFA candidates at NYU, any of you who are not here, um, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> we'll work through this. Hank backed off her can. He pinched loose the slick billy boy and chucked it against a plaster-crusted and shit-speckled tile. It smacked wetly a dead fish against the dirty bathroom wall. He avoided glancing into the jagged remnants of the smashed mirror. Made petite by his size, she bent low beside him to flip pink skirt over her pale pimpled backside and pulled off, pulled off white lace up, her, up over herself. She dug under her skirt, pulled and twisted, adjusted. Her ass wiggled next to the rust-stained toilet. He yanked up his carhartts and frayed skivvies together, buckled his belt, and could just smell her booze and sweat and cheap shampoo. He quickly pulled the postcard from his breast pocket, examined it with morbid compulsion without feeling, and placed it in his back pocket. She turned, pushed a fist out, and unclenched her dry, dirty hand. Who's Darlene? She touched the ink on his arm. My horse. He dug in the ripped front pocket of his pants and pulled out a crumpled wad of cash. He handed some over. She told him she had to be going, leaving the door unlatched as she left. Late afternoon light glanced through a solid line along the door's dark edge. He scratched his head. The shag was long enough for clippers, but he hadn't thought to buy any while he ate, drank, and fucked through his check. He ran water over his cut knuckles, splashed some in his face. The water cooled his scarred forearms and beaded on his hands. He looked at the sick prison tats on his fists. Love, true. Lushka again. He pushed the knuckles of his eyes, pressed hard. A wheel squealed pain against a brake shoe long and over some distance. He picked up his ruck. He'd sewn on a pair of old shirts around the obliterated canvas. What was left of the original was now the color of slate, greening at the corners, old, not heavy, the straps felt too thin. The tracks curved out behind the truck stop. The curved rail forced the trains to slow. It was a decent spot to catch out. He heard a trucker gun his diesel and power out to the highway. There was a long line of gray rolling east across the soft Allegheny Plateau. Clouds plowed the rest of the light away. He left the door of the head open and took off through the dry leaves and naked trees toward the rails. Pulling on his ratty ball cap, he stopped, startled like suddenly remembering. He looked at his shoes, nothing. He looked back at the station truck stop. What was it? He fingered the knife he'd bought after he cashed his check from state. Tried to gauge what time he had left for the sound of the oncoming train. No time. No time for anything. Sign flying or spanging or fuck all. Aiden was close. Always complicated shit. And it was too near to Darlene to get, and getting out of state anyway. He looked back at the station. Definitely no time to arrive. The train blew off in the distance. Closer. He kept on toward the track. Leaves shust and twigs snapped at his hard step. The ruck turned almost in front of him as he jogged. He pushed the bag around and 
grabbed hold of a springy sapling to steady himself, then slipped his arm through the other strap. The train was coming. It lulled, jockeyed in path, heavy bogey on metal, iron wheels and elbows, trucks juking and stuttering over the ties, around the slow, long, easy bend in the track. A safe hide, 20 feet from the empty rails. Hank squatted in the cold, dry leaves. The empty car sped, sped closer, clack-clacking near. A semi jake braked on one of the ramps of the highway. It rattlestaked, pissing air near the mechanic whir of the elevated roadway. He looked at the highway above the gas station. Then he looked back at the naked track. He listened and waited in the shade. The train was immediate. Engine pulled past. The cars appeared at three-second intervals, he counted. The whole mechanism pressed a timeline ahead, marked by airy lulls made of couplers, receiver hitches, bars, brake, and hydraulic and electric lines. An expanse of forest behind. Hank reached out. The pack and bedroll bounced against his back. He laced his hand around the cold iron, stepped, and pulled his trailing foot to the jagged metal tread. The tug was sudden. He lurched and reeled, attached by muscle and bone to indifferent speed. Scaling grab irons to the top, he crossed from a covered hopper to a box and sat on the roof of the shaking train. Bed rolling ruck between his thick knees. He looked ahead. The early stars seemed at standstill in a wide darkening blue. The unmoving moon perched low. A shadow of cattails dangled from a signal bridge ahead. Thin struts emerged from the darkened tracks. Lay flat, stretched his arms to, to dangling ropes. The low oil set knots whipped his fingertips. Fat bolted trusses cut the stopped sky as the box passed over a bridge. The train below, still knocking, slipping, slipped over lips of rail on rail. Repeated a metronome of metal beats. He loved it. The bridge went. Hank sat up in the dark, turned open his whiskey, drank, and looked at the highway beyond. Headlights slid slowly backward, gliding silently on and off ramps, fast forward, then reverse like beast's eyes, twitching uncertainly in the rising dark, through highballed the train, chunking heavy and hard over the ties. Near the head end, a flock of sparrows mobbed about, startled and swarming away from their perch in an old oak near the tracks. They darted in mass, like thick drifts of smoke, and swarmed back to the heavy black fingers of the reaching tree. A single animal spilled out, zipped around in a slow arc like the trajectory of a, of a hurled stone, and then returned to the bunch. The crowded society was a delicate thing as it gripped the oak. Hank watched the scene, black and white in the pressing moonlight. The protean shadow passed, disappeared beyond a shallow bend. He swigged again, wrapped the bottle in a sock, and stuffed it in his rug. Crawling to the edge of the boxcar, he swung the bag into the open eye. His hands pressed against the cold metal as he skirted from trim, then climbed down. Rock and brush buzzed below, gray flying blurred below his feet, below his legs. Foot on a loose door latch, drunk and shaky, he vaulted to the compartment below. His knees made a noise as he worked up from a hard crouch. An old man leaned near the door on the other side. He was hanging on to the door latch. His shirt, <coughs> excuse me, his shirt was blue flannel, his dungarees black. He had a brakeman's cap and his hair was gray. He looked at Hank. Hank said, excuse me. The man looked back at the flashing trees out the open eye. His thick salt and pepper beard shook in the wind. Hank unrolled his bed and sat. He pulled out a cigarette and clicked his lighter several times until it lit. Weaved there on the deck, feeling as drunk, and then dragged on the burning stem of his lips. Okay, tired just now, he said. The old man's cap turned but didn't nod. Been a rest of my eyes, Pop. 
Just keep watch, yeah? Hank said and then dragged wildly on a cigarette. The old man turned away, looked out at the hazy gray beside him. Laying down, Hank closed his eyes to the old man and the night's sleep was immediate, the cigarette still burned in his fist. The man walked over and took the cigarette. He dragged on it once, flicked it into the blurred brush beyond the open door. Hank didn't stir. The cigarette sparked a miniature explosion against the stones around the ties and died. Hank dreamt of two engines head-on, metal plowing metal, ties and iron, crushed and torn like matchsticks, screeching and misting dirt. He dreamt of disaster. He dreamt of a cornfield meet. Somewhere inside, beyond his strict disbelief, he prayed for it. It's chapter three, this is chapter nine. I'm jumping ahead, so there's not much you need to know. Just you know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get through this. Uh, this is a this is a chapter about two Pollocks. They're 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 kind of the foils. They're 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 two of probably four or five foils in this whole thing. Um, little Cuba cleaned his nine millimeter at the kitchen table. The cigarette smoke hung in the room. The haze clung to the coats in the closet door near the fridge. He watched Evo, <coughs> Evo walk to the sink and open the window to the cold. Smoke shifted, then slowly dissipated. Lifting the hand, Kuba held the piece and cleaning rod and breathed the silk whistle of smoke through the ejection port. Prey pushed from the barrel like out of an old black powder gun. He placed the gun beside a pile of rags, rim oil, and a drab toothbrush with black bristles. The brim of his ball, ball cap lifted. His big brother breathed, breathed, unmoving beside the sink. Evo stared out the window, across the flat scrub out back. The dogs were near awake and scraping the sides of their kennel. A bitch, heavy chains of the rape rack, whined inside her muzzle. A single long note thrummed against the misty morning. You got an hour, Evo said. I'll be ready. What about the dogs? I'll take care of them. He gripped his thick green overcoat and put it on, then said, I don't plan on coming back. All of them will keep the grand. The barrel of Kuba's nine millimeter scraped against the kitchen table as Evo picked it up, slid in a loaded clip and snapped the action home. He snicked the safety on and placed it in his back pocket. Kuba leaned his chair and put his cigarette on the ashtray while Evo opened the sliding glass door. He watched his brother step across the low porch and out into the fallow backyard beyond, then picked up another gun and began to clean it. Evo had his two best, his best two dogs and keep in a pair of detached sheds some yards from the main house. The kennel was in the barn. It was years since their father turned the property over to his boys and the land had seen no farming. There were the two in the shed, ten in kennel, five match and fight dogs, plus the bitch of the fuck rag. Sounds of scraping and the bangs of metal hinges straining and buckling under the attacks of caged animal hounded the air between the house proper and the sheds and barn. It was all a muted chaos. He started toward the sheds. Shadows and light cast hovering bars of dust inside the wood shed. The cage was just a box with old timbers at the top, spot welded seven, seven eighth inch bars, and new wood at the base. The wood was chewed. <coughs> Sorry. Blood stained the splinters. He left it there. He thought of it as a warning to new fighters, but it, always, it was always unheeded. The dogs in keep were, were kept separate from the others. There were those that had seen Scratch, had gameness, those he'd rolled, sometimes bump dogs who were ready or near, aggressive dogs and the aggressive dogs and keep were nasty things, hungry and desperate, isolated. Evo thought of Hank Poins, 
wished him ill. He named all the dogs in his head when he trained them, Blackie Brown Spot, Fuckstick, or Shit for Brains. The names when they came out of keep and he took them to fight. This one was Hugh. He was a 20-inch brown toss-a-bull terrier mix of Butte. He'd stood two times in the game and not lost, not curred out, though he'd fanged his last match. His mangled flu still held the scar. He stood now as Eddie Bill's approach, slightly defiant beneath the massive heft of the transport chain and jives dangling from his thick neck. The shackles gave the weight, the, the chain more weight, built up his four quarters. There was something off about this dog, and Evil wasn't sure to be a champion. Something soft, weakness could take many shapes, not all overt. The hanging fetters clanked lightly as the animal swayed under the chain. He shuffled forward and growled once behind the crossbars. A good sign, pluck. His brown flanks heaved and his muscles with his, his muscle muscled withers were tight. <coughs> Ribs showed beside his gut. Evo wavered at the beauty of him. The wounds on the on the nape, the neck, and flew were purpled and healing mementos of his last fight. The dog had gameness. Evo snicked the safety off the nine millimeter, tapped the hard barrel against the bars, he pushed forward the, toward, forward to investigate. His nose pressed against the joint from the cage. Evo offered the barrel. Hugh sniffed and licked the front sights. Weakness, Evo fired. It surprised him that Hugh sat back on his haunches when the head blew apart at the back, like responding to a command to sit. Perhaps it was the weight of the chain swinging like a pendulum as the dog rocked back from the shot. Evo couldn't tell. The shot left the shadows, everything light and loud. The blood against the wall was a blink. Shaded wood and nothing before than a spray stamp. Pieces of skull ricocheted against the wall. Two crossed the distance and clung to the sleeve of his coat. He brushed them off. The round passed through the dog's loin and croup. It exited out the thigh and scattered his hawk among the metal mesh beneath him, mixing bone, flesh, and shit. Back in the drive, Kuba stood beside the truck and looked, looked, looked out. The sun was a sliver on the horizon. He could hear the bitch fret as he lowered the tailgate of the 350 and started loading in gear. Evo's form passed beside the breeding rack, stopped almost short, like suddenly remember work at, suddenly remember work at the barrel. Kuba watched him lower his arm, watched him fire, the gun flashed, the river stopped. It's on. Yeah. Right, one more short chapter. I'm actually going to skip the rest of that one. Uh, this is chapter 30. <coughs> so, uh, a lot of stuff is happening. Totally a page, so. You can make it. Um, Hank, the guy in the, the first chapter, he's gone riding the rails, his brother's chasing after him. Um, he's got two traveling companions, Girl and Spin, Spin is short for spinach. Uh, girl's transsexual. Girl was on her hands and knees just beyond the door, Spin was behind her. His leg, I'm sorry, his rough fingers tight around her naked brown hips. Girl's dick hung flaccid between her legs. It swung back and forth as Spin pushed in. She made little noises, but Hank couldn't see her face. The light from the crack in the door shone clear against the calves of both. Spin kept at it. Hank blinked, refocused. He pretended to sleep. Watched them fuck against the cold siding. The countryside spun black and white through the light spilling in from the open eye. The train stuttered. It lurched and ticked. An impatient, hurtling juggernaut. The mayhem repeated a cadence of clicking machinery and snapping metal fingers like some stroking single driving wheel rolling down the line 
a mindless steel hoop on a mindless rail that does not and cannot know how to shut itself off once it's broke loose the moorings of the yard. He had a moment of vertigo again, like when he saw his fingers detached from his hand, like during the shaking in Beirut. He was a marine in Beirut, by the way, and the bombing on his side. The nausea passed as he turned on his side, spin coughed and made wild grunting sounds. His white hands gripped and slackened against her hips. He let go and slapped. The crew was highballing the train, the clicking louder and faster, almost disappearing into a hum of speed. They rolled out onto the main iron. The box, rolling with the rest, leaned, protested under the strain, droned on against the trucks, answering the insist pole. Hank felt himself harden. Spin coughed loud, coming, smacked girl on her shoulder twice, then a hard, fresh clap against her ass. Girl let go a noise like a chuckle. Hank couldn't tell if any of this was funny. Spin shuddered. Hank half expected him to raise a hand and swing a cowboy hat around. The train settled into the run. Spin leaned forward on her. She rested her head against the trembling wood floor. A girl was crying. Hank turned on his other side and tried to sleep. Not long into this attempt, he heard them shuffling on the other side. He ignored their readjusting and tried to listen to the tap and shiver of the run. The lovely ugly made clicks like palpitation all around him. The tapping cast a meditative sheet from the ether space where all sound comes from. It tumbled through the cold and corrugated metal, splintered wood and steel, ties and rock, and wrapped itself around him. Then a pair of heavy beats, out of sync with the rest. Hank couldn't focus, couldn't sleep. A number more bangs, and he pushed up from the side to complain. Girl straddled above spinach, a three-foot length of rebar clutched in her tight fist. She raised the fluted rod a last time, held it quivering above her head, greasy chunks of skull and black hairs, and bright black blood shone like arced electricity at the end. She was framed perfectly in the flashing gray light from the crack in the door. Her pants were at her ankles. The indifferent world zipped past as the hot shot train hammered on. She brought the steel pole down into the brained remnants of Spinach's head and let go. The rebar danced a moment, then settled, stuck solid in the shivering wood deck. Um, our next reader was one of the featured poets in our pre-issue, Flapper House number eight, uh, which is available for sale after the show, like many of our back issues. Uh, she also has one of her books for sale, The Gods Are Dead, which is one of the best poetry books I've read in a very long time. It's really cool. Each poem is based on a, a card in the tarot deck. and. Uh, it's awesome. Some of them are, are in the Flapper House number eight. She's also the editor at Luna Luna magazine, which is a really cool website. You should check out if you haven't already. Um, and she's uh, going to read some more of her work tonight. Please welcome Joanna Valente. Thank everyone for having me and coming, and especially Anthony, and congrats on the book. So this first poem is called The Witch. 
You fell down when you first heard my voice. Your head slid under the cold blue vinyl of my car's seat. Your legs like a sweaty pineapple. You have never heard a sound like a scab, you say. When you fall asleep, I send your dreams to your lungs so you wake up in a cold sweat, in a fever, in a trance, with your heart beating like a pen spilling its ink into a lake. You live alone in your Brooklyn apartment. There are no plants. You don't believe in permanence, you say. We're the same that way. But I've roamed these streets with different names and faces, wearing death-like lipstick, shaping my body into new forms that mostly look just like the old ones in the dark. It's always the dark. It's always a river. I'm not going to hurt you. I told you that. He told me that when he had me sign my name, when he had me take off my clothes, I'm not going to hurt you. Give me a mouth and a watch, and I'll tell you when the time comes. This next one is called, In This Dimension You Don't Exist Except Everywhere. There was a time when I believed in you, mostly on nights when rain fell and rose like wings tearing earth open, like an extended absence where feet grow out of the ground like a tomato plant, even in mid-November where nothing is encouraged to grow. Not with this hand, responsible for the wall between the dead and living swans. With some kind of mollusk against your neck, hot like wax between your open thighs. Which is better than men who are still breathing air as if they own the right to exist in a place where trees sometimes grow out of albatross skulls. Once wild before the land became a grid and I stopped believing in you. When you told me you don't know the future, but there is still your hand inside me and this is the age you give up. So this next poem is in my third book, which is coming out in June. And it's all about dead babies and abortion and like sexual assault, because that's like really awesome and like not at all depressing. So this poem is about my own abortion and it's through the voice of the dead baby. 
So it's gonna get spooky. In the beginning, everything was water. One. In the beginning, I was not a man. On waters I drank to find home, the blackest dark. On slugs served, I ate to understand color, what a woman could die from. Two. Do you remember when we met? I could not say how much I loved you. In a waiting room, a woman I love who doesn't even know me, but loves me so much, she can't stand to keep me like a dying radio. She can't stand to kill me the same way she gave her cat to sleep. Three. I don't kick to calm her down. She will think she is making the wrong decision if I move. That I will come back to haunt her when she is older and married. When she pulls down a string to reveal a bloodless tampon. Four. In the doctor's office, I taste bitter and know there is something ugly about me. Never seen, I imagine her eating slugs on rock salt to satisfy me. Me, a dash between her and her lover, her legs. Inside her restless sleep, I dream of breath. It takes a certain kind of skill to unfinish what you started. It takes a certain kind of love to pronounce my name, gorge on slugs, to pull yourself right out of yourself. I heard you when you said sorry. So I'll read two more. And this one's called Body Within Body. The lights turned off and the sea wasn't outside your window. The G train screeched to a stop. The conductor, not you, said there are aliens with you when you sleep. At 5.30 a.m., someone comes into your bedroom and they are not alive. But you are not scared, even though you should be, and you have sex the way a ghost would but you are not a ghost. Before you get up, you ask, how does dying feel? Maybe it's easier to eat a dead corpse than to build a new human. So now you understand the use of color in a Monet. Way to deconstruct a building, quit a job, masturbate in the arms of a girl you love, but haven't told her you love her yet. You hear someone say, living is the energy of someone else's memory. Like that time you went to the Museum of Natural History with your dad, and both of you walked from exhibit to exhibit, trying to study humanity 
before humanity existed, before manic panic could turn brown hair blue. And what does it even mean to be American, but not American? And this last poem is called, Those Around You Will Die When You Aren't Ready. Truth. Yeah. I feel like I should create a hashtag that just says like sad goth girl poems. <laughs> We've all walked into a bar before, feeling ourselves like our pussies are in our mouths, like our mouths are in our pussies. They're hungry. They want to be paid for all the hard work they've done. For seven years, making those moans at just the right moment, saying someone's muffled name, feeling a heavier body on top of you squirm and release, while you are still so hungry, and your pussy looks like a champ right now. She's a great actress. She doesn't even have to be hungry to get it on. That's what they all think anyway, all those men who drink a lot of wine and whiskey with names so fancy they can't pronounce them with a straight face. Sometimes I go to a bar, drink a lot of wine, kiss a man. Sometimes I go home with them, maybe because A, I don't know what else to do or B, because I want to, or C, I'm too young not to fuck everyone who crosses my pussy, or D, I know they'll like it. I've been told my pussy is magic, and I believe it's magic because that's what they all say. And I'm scared. I don't have any money. I don't know if I do what I want or if I'm doing what they want, because I want to be wanted. I want to be loved. Everyone at this bar looks the same. I look like everybody at this bar. Everyone at this bar is going to die. One day, I'm going to die. I tried to kill myself. I thought about killing myself a lot. I'm not brave enough. At my job, I tell my boss I was raped. My coworkers read articles about my abortion. I used to be a high school English teacher. I taught my students present tense, past tense, future tense. None of us understood the present. It was always easier to understand the future when your present means you can't walk down the street. Have a man possess your body just because he wants to. There is no trial, no allegation, no justice. The present is different when you have a pussy. Blood between your legs so hot, so eager, and student loans because YOLO, because you don't want children, and you're going to die while listening to Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great pleasure to welcome the renowned astrophysicist who's joining us from the other end of the galaxy, the late Carl Sagan. Thank you, Alibi. It is my great pleasure to be here at the Flapper House reading, and it's my honor to introduce our next reader. But before we do that, I'd like to make a brief announcement of some very exciting news that you all in this room will be the first to hear. As you may know, on September 5th, 1977, we launched the Voyager Golden Record into the cosmos. A record which contains 28 songs, over 100 images, and greetings in over 50 languages meant to encapsulate our civilization for any extraterrestrials who may encounter it. Well, as you may know, in the past four decades, our civilization and our culture and technology have advanced so that we can now fit more information into smaller spaces. So it's my great pleasure to us that on September 5th, 2017, we will be launching another Voyager record into the cosmos. It will contain some of the great cultural achievements that we have made in the past 40 years. It will include a playlist much longer than the original record containing songs such as Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, Let's Go Crazy by Prince and the Revolution, The Clash's Rock the Casbah, Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine, Billy Ocean's Get Out of My Dreams, Get Into My Car, Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, Coincidentally enough, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston from the soundtrack TV motion picture The Bodyguard. Meatloaf's I Would Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That. Where the Party At by Jagged Edge featuring Nelly, Jermaine Dupree, and DeBrat. Do You Realize by The Flaming Lips from their album Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. Hey Ya by the hip-hop duo Outkast. Smash song Get Lucky by Daft Punk featuring Pharrell Williams and Nile Rodgers. And The Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight by R.E.M., which, well, arguably not one of the most popular well-known songs of our culture, I just think it's a really good deep cut by one of our civilization's most accomplished alternative rock and roll acts. And I think extraterrestrials would really enjoy it, given the chance. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time just want to introduce our featured reader for tonight. I'm very honored that he wrote a book inspired by the Voyager record. It's going to be for sale. You can also buy t-shirts after the show. Please welcome Anthony Michael Moreno. I'm just going to move this, not for the purposes of merchandising, but just so I can read from the table. I really appreciate everyone who's been here today, especially all of the, uh, the space-themed poems. And any of the poems that weren't space-themed, they were all fantastic. Joe covered some of the, I mean, I'm sorry, Carl covered some of this already, but we're going to backtrack. <clears throat> the Golden Record is what Carl Sagan and his collaborators call the collection of sounds, 
greetings, images, and music that they sent into space mounted Voyager spacecrafts in August and September of 1977. The record itself is made out of gold-plated copper and is covered by an aluminum seal electroplated with uranium-238. The seal has coded visual information, instructions on how to play the record and where to find the planet Earth. The bulk of the record is made up of music and pictures, 118 images, an audio collage of Earth sounds, and 27 musical tracks. But it opens up with words. Spoken greetings in 55 languages, the living and the dead, all of which roughly translate to hello out there from here. There are also 15 a bit more substantial messages recorded by delegates of the United Nations Outer Space Committee, uh, a spoken message from the Secretary, of the, uh, Secretary General of the UN, a type list of the names of US House and Senate members, a letter from then President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, and one recorded whale song. Before the Golden Record, there was the Pioneer plaque attached to Pioneers 10 and 11 and sent into space about five years before Voyager. The message about humanity contained on the Pioneer plaque is a simple line illustration of a naked man and a naked woman standing next to each other. The two figures take up about a third of the plaque's six by nine inches. They stand in front of a rendering of the Pioneer craft for scale. The man is holding up his hand as if he's waving hello, but he's not waving his hand to say hello. The plaque's designers, Carl Sagan, his then wife, Linda Saltzman, and astronomer Frank Drake, knew that aliens, if they come across the plaque, won't know that this gesture means hello. The man was drawn holding up his hand to display his opposable thumb and to display the flexibility of his limbs. This way, the aliens won't see the image and assume that we are as rigid in being as we are in representation. Hard lines on metal traveling through space. The man and the woman are not holding hands, so as the aliens will not assume that we are a conjoined duplex being. Only hair on their bodies is on their eyebrows and on their heads. The woman kind of rests her weight on one hip, chilling. She used to have a vulva, but NASA had it erased. <laughs> the public reacted badly. People said NASA was sending porn into space. <laughs> they said the woman looked too passive, maybe even subordinate to the man. How come she wasn't waving her hand? She and the man next to her were obviously white, or they were not. Because of this controversy, the Voyager record does not include a photo of a naked man and a naked woman among its 118 images. But really when I say golden record, I mean golden records, since there are two of them. There are also two Voyagers, even though people usually only talk about Voyager 1, moving away so fast. The 55 greetings begin with Sumeria, which makes sense. So did Bright. This is an attempt at something like David Markin's with David Markinson's bricolage, which might look and feel uneven when appropriated scientific specs are juxtaposed next to, let's say, a joke, but taken as a whole for an operatic unit, which is exactly what the Golden Record was. 
launch from Earth on Titan III e Centaur rockets and slingshot through space by intense gravitational pulls of giant gas planets. The Voyagers are moving at more than 35,000 miles per hour. That's fast. <laughs> fast enough for the Voyagers to overtake the Pioneers, which are no slouches either. All four space probes have enough speed to break free of the sun's influence and eventually leave the solar system. Hence, the messages. There are three Bach tracks on the Golden River. Three Bach tracks. And when you add Beethoven and Mozart, Germany becomes the most highly represented culture on the Golden Record. Steve Martin made a joke on Saturday Night Live that the aliens find the Golden Record and write back, send more Chuck Berry. <laughs> <laughs> it's his joke, it's not mine. It's, it's funny, without context, the aliens probably won't be able to place any of the music chronologically. Will they know that Johnny B. Good is the most recent musical song offered on the Golden Record? Will they hear the Chevy engines revving outside of the studio, fizzing coke bottles, Jim Crow, the clamping shut of full-out shelter doors? Will they notice any difference at all between Chuck Berry's song and Blind Willie Johnson's? Or will they listen to Bach and think that his music is the latest development, disembodied aesthetics, endpoint in humanity's linear artistic progress from simple to complex? Why include so much Bach if not for some humming importance? Say hello to Hamas, said David Markson after I told him I was moving to Israel. <laughs> Though traveling at incredible speeds, in the vacuum of space, Voyager has no need for aerodynamics. It is neither sleek nor sexy. Its most notable feature is the high-gain antenna, a wide, white transmission dish used for relaying information to and from Earth. Its size is representative of its importance. Voyager's mission, like the record, is about communication. The body, if you can say it has a body, is called the bus, or the instrument bay, a decagon with struts and lopsided spindly arms, scientific instruments protruding from its sides. It's upholstered with a charcoal gray thermal blanketing to protect it from the harsh space environment. Mounted on the instrument bay, the record seems to disappear like a wristwatch on the arm of a sensibly dressed man. The Sounds of Earth portion of the record was put together by Andrian and Carl Sagan. It was a sound collage of recorded noises of life on the planet Earth. The themes of the sounds follow the same trajectory as evolution from a human point of view. The solar system, the guttural planet's volcanoes, earthquakes, thunder, and mud. Animals in the jungle. Tools at work, Morse code. You think it will end with the sound of cars and rocket ships, but it doesn't. A crying newborn is kissed by its mother. It's followed by a strange pulsing sound. These are EEG patterns, brainwave activity. Specifically, Andrian's thoughts about Carl Sagan, with whom she had fallen in love. Those sounds blend, almost indistinguishably, into the sounds of a pulsar flashing at Earth from 600 light years away. With the, with the exception of the speeches given by the French and Swedish UN delegates on the Outer Space Committee, who snuck, on, who snuck in the only poetry on the record, excerpts from Waterlayer's Elevation, from Florida Hall, and the entirety of Harry Martinson's visit to the observatory, there's not much by way of literature on the Voyager record. Though the UN delegate messages sometimes approach saying something beautiful, 
the Nigerian delegate says his country is on the west coast of the continent of Africa, a landmass more or less shaped in the shape of a question mark. Voyager provides woefully little of what we would want potential aliens to think of as the literary product of planet Earth. The aliens who find the golden record are space junk scavengers, traveling the interstellar medium for scrap. There is a maw in the bow of their ship where all the garbage they steer towards is sucked down inside. There, compactors fitted with cutter heads tear up the record with the rest of the Voyager craft. On conveyors, focused lenses separate the trash on an atomic level removing gold and aluminum from the uranium-238, each being funneled to a different collecting bin. From these bins, the repurposed materials are sold in bulk ingots to jobbers on the homeworld. The pieces of the golden record become countless objects that have no equivalent here on Earth, and so cannot be expressed. The Voyager record contains 118 pictures meant to supply any alien who finds it with a visual summary of life on the planet. The images start with data, numbers, stats, planetary calculations, the universal language of math. But then they get more personal. There are images about the human body, about how we make babies, about the environment, about animals, about different levels of technology and types of civilizations on our planet. The pictures don't include any imagery that deals with death, or religious or national symbols as long as you don't count the picture of the Taj Mahal. There are no images of war. Linda Salzman, who drew the picture of the, pioneer, of the couple on the Pioneer plaque and considered herself a feminist, was really taken aback that people thought that she drew a woman who looked like a slave to the patriarchy. Even though both copies of the record were somewhere near Saturn by the time I was born in 1980, Carter's message was meant to speak for all Americans. So by extension, it's my message too. When I listen to the songs on the record, I do a type of revision where I remove two of the Bach tracks. I, I, I leave Kuvokando. I take out the Beethoven, Stravinsky, uh, Stravinsky, and Mozart as well. This leaves the version of the record that I listen to with Japanese gamelan, Senegalese percussion, Pygmy Girls Initiation Song, Australian Didgeridoo, a Mexican Mariachi Band, Japanese Sakopaji, Soviet Georgian Chorus, Navajo Chant, Azerbaijani Bagpipes, Bulgarian Bagpipes, Harpsichord from Renaissance England, Solomon Island Panpipes, Peruvian Panpipes, a Peruvian Wedding Song, Chinese Chin, Indian Raga, and American Blues, Jazz, and Rock and Roll. It feels very much more like a record produced by the world. Carl Sagan always insisted that NASA didn't erase the vulva of the woman on the pioneer plaque. He said that the vulva was left out on purpose because Greek, uh, the nudes in Greek statues don't show them either. I like to make mixed tapes. I would take songs from my CDs and other tapes. I'd wait, listening to the radio, until songs I wanted came on. Sometimes it could take all day. I had this technique to keep the recorded the keep the recording from ending with a jerk, if I ease my finger off the record button while I press the play pause button with my thumb, you could hardly tell where the, rec where the recording stopped. I would listen to the mixtapes on my Walkman on the way to and back 
from school, a long subway ride both ways, and on the walk home, about a mile away from there. We were in a car, a bunch of us, parked somewhere on Long Island, I think, with the engine off and one of my mixtapes on the, uh, in the cassette deck. It was dark out, and we look over our shoulders through the smoke. Anthony made this for me, said the girl I was dating to the car. I didn't say she was wrong. The romantic cliche of guys making mixtapes for girls. Sure is what I said. I made it for you. The next month, when she left for England, she took the tape, and I never heard it again. <laughs> the Voyager records still exist. Out there now, almost at the limits of the sun's influence, way past the most esoteric dwarf planets, Sedna, Palumea, Orcus. Carl Sagan thought that the record might last a billion years. But then it was always a billion with Carl Sagan. We can still put our hands on it if we want. All we have to do is move fast enough. Or we could let it go on forever, more or less. The aliens who discover the Voyager record are always on fire. They have bodies somewhere beneath all those flames. You can tell because of the smell and because sometimes pieces fall off. This is how they reproduce. When they reach out to retrieve the record, it melts. I still have to consider exactly what my revised golden record might sound like, but I know that I don't listen to enough world music to make it fair. I don't, I don't think I listen, uh, I don't think I listen to enough music to make any decision about what, what represents planet Earth. I'd probably only choose the kind of stuff that I like to listen to, which is to say that I can admit to myself what all the Bach fans couldn't admit to themselves. It's hard not to be biased, especially when the music sounds so good. In the 1984 movie Starman, Jeff Bridges plays an alien who comes to Earth after his people discover Voyager 2. As the spaceship pulls up to Voyager, the record is playing the Rolling Stone Satisfaction, which would be fine if sound could travel through space. <laughs> or if the Rolling Stones were actually on the Golden Record. Based on what the aliens learned, Starman is sent to Earth to make contact. When he is immediately fired upon by military jets, Starman reports back home that the contents of the, act of the record were inaccurate. The aliens who find the record have no ears, no auditory system of any kind. They communicate through a series of signs that they tap on each other's chests. One tap for yes, two tap for no. They have no audio technology. They never needed it. They never listened to anything before. The data on the golden record that they can understand, the images, is all that makes sense to them. Is all that makes sense next to all this gibberish. But they want to understand it. So they build two massive speakers. They lay their curling heads between the two boxes they let the woofers rattle their rings. Don't get me wrong, I wouldn't put on the record on a party. I don't know that many people who get down to panpipes and chain. SpaceX, a private orbital rocket launch and commercial transportation services company, is flying supply missions to the International Space Station for NASA now that the shuttle is retired. In 2012, SpaceX's first attempt to fly the Rocket 9, uh, the Falcon 9 rocket and Dragon capsule to the station failed when onboard computers automatically terminated the launch, 
with with less than with, with less than half a second to go before liftoff. Clouds of incandescent exhaust were already blasting out of the engines. They were successful when they tried again one week later. When the Dragon capsule finally made it to the space station, the astronauts on board were impressed with the sleek plane of the commercial spacecraft, as white and efficient as an iPod. If SpaceX ever makes an interstellar, if SpaceX ever makes an interstellar record, it will look like a video pitch for investors, close up of businessmen. His face is laughing. Adorable daughter laughs in a bedroom. A shot of the faraway Earth pulls out to reveal that the planet is being seen through the window next to the businessman who is enjoying a video chat with his daughter during spaceflight. The SpaceX logo actualizes at the bottom of the screen. The same commercial will run during Meet the Press. As I listen to the Bulgarian folk song, I picture your destruction by a thousand micro-impacts spread out over time in the empty regions of space, in the Oort cloud, which I imagine as dust, or space filled with dust, hard rock bits and ice. Battered, the Voyager craft rolls away with each hit as you play this song as accompanying soundtrack. The transmission dish shatters without noise. Voyager lists and is cold. This is not a suicide mission, but no extra steps were made to protect you. They did not bury you inside a black box deep inside the craft. Does it make you a more valid artistic work that you were never viable? If you are ever found, what will be left of you? Not something intentional. Each impact makes another tiny perforation in you, punctuating song. You become a remix. Not many songs, but one. Delio is about a legendary Bulgarian bandit rebel who took to the hills to fight the imperial rule of the Ottoman Turks, who were massacring whole villages. People said he couldn't be killed by traditional means, but only by a silver bullet. That is how they got him. You are made of gold-plated copper, so I never had much hope for you. It's a shepherdess's song, with bagpipes in it playing just like it was a cop screen. Okay, that's the show. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to Pacific Standard for hosting us once again. They're always the best to us. Uh, thank you to Alibi Jones. Thank you to all our readers, Bill, Stephen, Christina, Leona, Brian, Joanna, Anthony. Uh, did I thank all you beautiful people here yet? Thank you. Uh, we'll be back later this summer. Stay tuned to flapperhouse.com for more details. And if you want to buy some books, Flapper Houses are on sale over here. The Voyager Records on sale over here.